And we're back. We've also got Q. We've got Matthew Pines joining us. Let's go to the large-scale view. There we go. Q, uh, where are you talking to us from? I've escaped my parents' basement. I am now at my best friend's house that I may or may not have broken into with my spare key. So if you are watching this right now, I'll be my bad. <laughs> no issues. Uh, we've got an incredible guest with us today, Matthew Pines, uh, fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, uh, where you conduct analysis on the national security and international policy implications of Bitcoin. Uh, you're also a management consultant. You advise the U.S. government, large companies in security and resilience challenges. You've conducted dozens of assessments on national preparedness, emerging technology, strategic security programs, and you are also an expert in executing exercises, experiments, and other analytical activities to help solve complex security challenges and inform strategic planning. You also have a master's degree in philosophy and public policy from the London School of Economics and Political Science and a bachelor's degree in physics and philosophy with honors from John Hopkins University. I will say on a personal level, um, you are one of, in my opinion, the highest signal people on Twitter. Uh, I can pay you no higher compliment than there are exactly two people who I have notifications on for every single tweet they make, and you are one of them. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I guess uh, it's just going to be just shitposting in cat memes from now on. Then. That's not going to deter P. Just know that it's just going to be in a speed no matter what. <laughs> I think I think P does, or you are owed at least an explanation of who the second person is. And it is, in fact, the bot cat account that just replies to specific uh, Twitter accounts with a cat meme. That's so, right. You are in strong company, Matt, but just know that is the company you keep. It's rarefied air. It's rarefied air. <laughs> very, very rarefied It's an honor. How's it going, man? It's going well. Yeah, chilling. Nice uh, nice weather decently in D.C. It's kind of humid, but it could be worse. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, there's a lot going on in the world today. I want to hear your thoughts on all of it over the next, uh, <laughs> you know, approximately 60 to 75 minutes. Um, there's so much that we could dive into during this conversation. Why don't we start with the thread that you posted with the initial tweet saying, uh, keep coming back to these charts from Lynn Alden, thinking about the ways this time may be different. So the key difference, in my opinion, is the nature of the treasury market itself. Unlike 40s or even 70s, UST is the foundational reserve asset and collateral for the global dollar system. Uh, take us through the, take us through your comments here. Yeah. So that's, you know, I try to think in public a bit with, uh, with those Twitter threads. So, um, you know, and obviously I'm building off of some of the great work that Lynn Alden and Luke Roman and other, a bunch of other folks have done. Um, but I just try to think, think about, you know, what is actually going on in the global monetary and geopolitical system, since it's a extremely complex dynamic system. And while history teaches us, you know, some important lessons, you know, this time may be different in certain critical respects. And so I was trying to think through what are those sort of salient features. And obviously you can't pack everything into, you know, those, those character limits, but one of the most important things that I, I've been thinking about a lot is the treasury market itself. Um, 
you know, if you look at my Twitter feed, you'll see a lot of posts that sort of relate to the monetary plumbing. And I'm by no means an expert on monetary plumbing, but I sort of follow people who are, and I'm sort of starting to try to absorb by osmosis some of some of their insights. Because um, I think it's it's kind of critical to, to everything that we see uh, related to financial markets and even geopolitical dynamics is is how the system that we live in sort of really functions and how the status of U.S. Treasury security as a global reserve asset is sort of critical to that system. Um, and so, you know, I start off by looking at these two charts that um, Lynn put out, you know, I think a year or two ago, if not even longer, that have really stuck with me, you know, and probably been my, my go-to kind of charts to try to understand the historical periods that are analogous to our current situation of high inflation, right? And the two periods of high inflation that we have in the United States are 1940s, post-war, has analogous circumstances to our present day where we came out of a global, you know, disruptive event. Then it was World War. Now it's a pandemic with very high sovereign debt loads. And we had to find a way to essentially you know, rebalance the, the public debt books. And what we did in the 40s was yield curve control, where the, the Fed set uh, a cap on yields um, and worked basically collaboratively with the Treasury Department, essentially as a um, subservient to the Treasury Department to keep yields capped. And then they sort of let inflation run hot in these sort of sporadic pulses uh, over the, the next 10 to 12 years. Uh, and sort of let the debt to GDP ratio rebalance. Contrast that to the 70s, where we had low debt ratios relative to where we were post-war, but we had a supply shock. We had a whole bunch of demographic issues, uh, baby boomers, uh, and you know the OPEC wars coming off of the the, uh, the gold peg standard with the Nixon shock. All those things basically coincided with this inflationary regime in the 70s that we sort of look back and like the Volcker shock and everything is sort of the most relevant historical analogs. The, you know, there's a lot to say about that. For me, the most important thing that I'm trying to think about is the, the status of the Treasury security itself has fundamentally changed um, in ways that were not the case in either of those two previous uh, periods. And even really were not the case even during the great financial crisis um, in terms of the role that it's now played in the global dollar system. And so we can get really wonky with this, but the fundamental question I'm trying to answer is like, what is the Treasury security doing for the world now that it wasn't doing before? And the key thing is it's actually serving as a form of money. Uh, and that sounds, you know, what do we mean by money? It's kind of a complicated question. But, you know, one of the most important things we've done over the past um, you know, post-financial crisis has sort of taken the banks out of the business of lending, really. So the banks used to be the main drivers of credit growth and therefore sort of money creation was um, banks lending to the economy. And that effectively is what grows money. Um, you can extra deposit in your bank account when you borrow money. The bank just invented that basically and credited it to you. And now you can do things. You can buy a mortgage. You can um, do other sort of productive things in the economy. The Great Financial Crisis basically broke that system and really pushed most of the lending in the system to sort of non-bank shadow bank entities, including offshore uh, uh, sort of dollar funding markets. And those markets rely on the treasury security as the essential collateral. And those markets essentially a much more at arm's length from sort of the direct supervision of central banks. So the commercial banking system in various countries is directly under the thumb. They are heavily regulated post-financial crisis in terms of how much leverage they can take on, how much they can expand their balance sheet. And you can almost think of bank balance sheets pre-financial crisis as the definition of how much money there is, just how big those balance sheets get uh, is essentially how much money there is in the system, um, in a credit money system. And when they basically put a, a severe restriction on how much you know, the commercial banking system could expand the balance sheets, that implicitly sort of kept um, formal money creation low, but, you know, 
they basically just sort of push the bump in the rug over to the shadow banking system, where there's a much more complicated game being played in sort of offshore dollar and funding markets um, that rely on the treasury security as collateral. Basically, you want to, you know, make us, you know, securitize or unsecuritize a loan anywhere in the world, uh, you know, usually you post treasuries uh, as collateral. And so treasuries, you know, with respect to this 20th century history of thinking about them as like retirement savings, the bond market, pension funds, et cetera, that has really given way to a much more kind of complicated and unregulated um, sort of offshore market for trading these securities as collateral and they're in the rehypothecating. So someone borrows them, another person basically uses them as collateral to make another loan, that loan can be used. So you get these chains of chains of, of leverage basically built up in the offshore system. It's really hard to look at, um, but basically that is what is very vulnerable in the current environment. Um, and, and you're seeing signs post uh, the pandemic crisis in March 2020, where there was essentially a crisis in that in that in that market, um, where people basically just didn't trust their their counterparties, and there just wasn't enough sort of shadow bank balance sheet to uh, facilitate the trading of those securities, and it just froze. And when you're the U.S. government, right, and your debt market doesn't trade, that is like the top of the panic spectrum, right? And so that is what triggered in March of 2020 just the absolute firehose of QE liquidity to try to um, keep that uh, system from completely collapsing and taking down the global economy. And so th that has sort of seared in their memory um, a lesson that they need to try to fix it. And so basically they've done a lot of things, I won't go into all the details, basic since March 2020 to try to patch up the treasury market. But basically what it tells me is that it's not a very stable foundation of how much you would want to build a global economic system, right? And I think the they recognize that and if you like follow the kind of technocratic papers and the, the sort of debate, the policy um, discussion sort of between the Treasury and the Fed and sort of the, the wonks who follow that, they recognize this is like a problem. It's like a big problem. And they're trying various ways of getting their arms around it after it revealed just how unstable it all was in March of 2020. Um, and they're basically racing against time, essentially. They're trying to, to, to patch it up at the same time they're facing high inflation. And so the Fed is now being forced to put more stress on this system. Uh, and so basically that's what I'm looking at is like you have this sort of um, structural uh, uh, phenomenon that's, that's evolved over the past, you know, really 15 years post-crisis that's putting a ton of stress on the treasury market, which is like basically the foundation of the whole global economic system. Uh, and, and yeah, that, that we're, when you combine basically the fact that we have um, – you have such high debts that we just can't accommodate too much of a rise in debt service, which is going to be triggered by higher interest payments without triggering systemic collapse. And, you know, the, the, the fundamental, I had another thread a few days ago where you know, people look at the Fed's balance sheet, um, you know, and, you know, inspect the reports and it's, a, you know, $9 trillion and you can look at how it's, how it's composed. But what people don't really think about is the implicit balance sheet. <laughs> and this is extremely hard to measure, but the implicit balance sheet, if you look at, the facilities that they've had to set up post uh, the pandemic crisis effectively backstop what's called the euro dollar offshore system. Basically, the Fed cannot let that system completely break. And the way that they have facilities in place to try to backstop it are things like swap lines with other friendly central banks. Um, they have repo facilities for other foreign investment authorities to come and basically pledge collateral and get dollars. So basically what they've tried to do is make dollars fungible with treasury security. So basically, if you have a treasury security around the world and you have trouble ever finding a buyer for it, 
they're trying to basically set up mechanisms in which you can sell it to the Fed and get reserves, get 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 dollar liquidity. Um, and that that is a uh, that's been a slow but sort of radical transformation of what a treasury security is. It went from being something that really didn't have much moneyness associated with it. Like you hold a treasury security, you mainly held it because you expected to get a certain set of interest payments, a certain income stream over time, and it had a certain risk profile, et cetera. You didn't really hold it because you think it thought of it as a tradable medium of exchange. But now, because of the you know massive expansion in shadow banking in the past 15 years, treasury securities are a medium of exchange essentially for global financial institutions. But importantly, they're subject to runs because they're not officially backstopped. Um, uh, but what they try to do now is basically try to backstop them. But what that means is that you're effectively monitoring, you're basically, um, you're in a situation where you have uh, the threat of shadow deflation, uh, basically triggering a zero to one moment of debt monetization, right? You have this sort of growth of private shadow liabilities um, in the private market that in a crisis become public liabilities. And so you don't see that show up on the Fed's balance sheet. Um, and it's not priced in by, you know, in any means, but it's like, that's the, that is the sort of metastasis of the, of the, of the overall dollar system. That's sort of hard to get your arms around. It makes it acutely fragile in this, in this current moment. Um, so yeah, there's like a lot to go in there, but that's kind of the summary is treasury securities are not just your sort of bond, um, your, your grandmother's bond market. They're really, you know, uh, a fundamental piece of how the, you know, the current architecture of the economic system works. And they've changed a lot just in the past two years. And they're even changing, you know, as we speak, as the, as the Fed and the Treasury try to put more policies in place to keep it from falling apart. Matt, do you mind if we maybe expand on this idea that, you know, these bonds are the Treasury assets that they're going after? As you mentioned, it's changed drastically just in these two years since the COVID crisis and what they've done. But it was also changed in 2008 with what they were buying then. And it was even changed in 2001 when they were buying then. So could we maybe, like, I want to be in history class yeah. and hear from you, just the iterations of this change, because it feels like we've moved the goalpost one inch at a time so many times that we're on a whole new field now. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's sort of this um, frog in a frying pan kind of situation where you sort of take these incremental moves in response to a particular crisis over time. And that ratchets the overall system in a certain direction and that becomes baked in. And then that, you know, generates its own internal pathology, specifically like moral hazard, which, you know, tends to pre precipitate the growth of, of further private sector liabilities that create systemic risk that then the public sector has to come in and bail out. And so that was kind of the ratchet that the regulatory space followed the major financial crises that we had, um, really starting, you know, 2000 dot-com crisis, which really wasn't a, like a banking crisis, but sort of resulted in the Fed having to, you know, catch up with interest rates um, to try to stimulate out of a recession. And that, and you also had the, the China coming into the WTO and basically opening up the global labor pool, which suppressed um, uh, interest rates even further, which stimulated the housing bubble. And, and at the time, basically, the recycling system we had set up um, in sort of the 90s, really earlier, but really got turbocharged in the late 90s and into the 2000s when China kind of opened up to the world and we really kind of put globalization into high gear, was U.S. runs trade deficits. Basically, we have the exorbitant privilege, really burden, of the dollar that allows us to buy things with paper, right? And in particular, that paper uh, bought us Chinese goods. And when we brought China into the World Trade Organization, as soon as sort of the deal was... Uh, you accept those dollars, we get all, all of that uh, cheap consumer good, 
you take those dollars and you recycle them back into treasury securities. And the treasury market really grew kind of in parallel with China's globalization, China's growth. And, you know, it felt like we were in this kind of twin system where we could sort of bring China into the global kind of um, Western-led uh, monetary and geopolitical order. They would get rich and sort of slowly democratize over time. And, you know, we got the benefit of having a buyer of our debt. We could fund, you know, our Middle East adventures, uh, et cetera, cheaply. And so the treasury market was relatively quiet-ish then, uh, and because there was a big buyer basically every year coming from China. Uh, and then we had the housing bubble, basically, was the metast was the sort of pathology that that system generated. Basically, all of these excess surpluses kept interest rates low, with pushed people into speculative housing investments. You had that bubble blow up. You had um, all these uh, you know, massive banking leverage basically get wiped out. And, and, and the U.S. government, basically, and other governments around the world had to take on those banking debts as public debts. And so a banking crisis kind of precipitated a massive expansion of public debts. Out of the 2008 financial crisis, we had to do basically a whole bunch of you know, new rules. Uh, Basel III was one of the big set of international financial regulatory changes that were, that were done to try to make banks safer, essentially, to their host governments um, and really sort of put um, a, a, a bunch of restrictions on them. On the, among the major restrictions were how much they can expand their balance sheet, how much leverage they can take on, uh, but also required the banks to hold a certain amount of government debt what are called high quality liquid assets and basically force the banking system to support the rel their, their sovereign's debt issuance. Um, and that was critical really in the period um, that we've been in for the past 12, 15 years is basically the banking sector basically helping to monetize the Fed. It's like an extension of the Fed's balance sheet. Um, and you can almost think of QE and the Fed's balance sheet as like a capacitor where just sort of liquidity depending on you know, who needs that liquidity, either it goes into the banking system or it comes out of the banking system to the Fed. Um, and and it's, it's basically, though, it's, in, it's mostly fungible. Um, but Basel III was like a, a critical piece. And it was a, not just the United States, it was around the world, um, the Western world uh, specifically, that, that we sort of forced the banking system to capture, um, to help, help monetize the, the sovereign's debt. But as I mentioned, like, that didn't stop this offshore funding market and really this was called securitization process from going into overdrive. And so you've had, instead of like the mortgage uh, bubble, you've had a bubble in like, like, you know, lots of other things. <laughs> you've had um, just a proliferation of credit markets, uh, high yield markets, corporate bond markets, basically able to um, get funding now in this sort of shadow banking system. So most corporates don't fund themselves through, like traditional um, like bank lending, they, they buy, they issue bonds and, you know, the public bond market buys it from them. Um, and those bonds are then repackaged and securitized and, and sold. So we basically have dramatically um, sort of hyper-financialized uh, the global economy even more after 2008, but it's, but it's happened outside of the traditional banking system. Um, and that's what the, the BIS, which is the Bank for National Settlements, has sort of tried to, is like belatedly like uh, recognized now, is that like, they thought they like had, one, <laughs> they had sort of captured their banks. They had sort of imposed these regulations. They had found, you know, a captive buyer of their debt. And then all the while in this offshore market, you know, the Wild West was, was unfurling. Um, and the other kind of key geopolitical angle that also changed then is that China stopped being a net buyer of our treasury debt. So 2013, their holdings of U.S. treasury securities peaked. Um, and we basically had to, you know, make that up, right? The Fed basically had to make up the difference. Um, and that's like the structural difference is that since 2014, the Fed has been the marginal buyer of U.S. Treasury securities. Um, and, you know, they hope they can change that uh, with QT. 
but I'm struggling to see where the marginal buyer is going to come from unless unless rates get 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 much higher. And so that is that's why I like try to look to is is the the structure of the U.S. Treasury market. The, the other thing that people point to is it's you know traditionally been considered the most safe and liquid asset, um, but because of the nature of how treasury securities are traded, and this gets a little bit complicated, but essentially there's there's on the run and off the run treasury securities. This is sort of the, the, the wonky term. Um, on the run are basically the most freshly issued um, uh, notes, uh, bonds, or bills in that um, in that in, in, in that certain issue. Uh, off the runs are ones basically in, in the secondary market, and the treasury security market is very complicated. And it's actually you'd think the federal government would have us would would want to like control it more than they actually can, uh, but they really don't even know who's trading it. Like they're trying to put in data. Uh, they're trying to put in re- requirements now to like get data on who's trading U.S. Treasury securities, so they can just try to anticipate like potential like like funding problems. Uh, but they're sort of you know like anything else in the government, it takes like years to get those policies approved. So they really don't have much of an idea, really, like what's going on. Um, and that that manifested in March of 2020, and that's what sort of put, put the fear of God in them. Um, because yeah, like these these markets rely on balance sheets to absorb that treasury security issuance. And like structurally, if you just zoom out, like we have persistent trade debt, we have persistent, um, you know, uh, fiscal deficits, you know, COVID blew it up, blew us out of the water. We're like only now, like we're turning to quote unquote normal of like trillion dollar deficits indefinitely. Um, those have to be funded somehow, right? Like there has to be enough balance sheet to absorb that amount of issuance. Um, and there just isn't that, there's just isn't that balance sheet capacity. Uh, and so you, you think about like these different balance sheets have to absorb, and it's a matter of like can the can the monetary authorities and the tr- and the treasury basically force different balance sheets they can find to sort of stuff treasury securities to, to to capacity, and that's the game. And so like in the short term they can sort of find like new ways and new gimmicks, like they can adjust how much banks can hold. They can sort of do what's called the SLR relief, make the banks able to hold more. They can make you know other regulations to require other issue other balance sheets basically around the world to hold treasury securities. They can penalize people from trading tre- you know, tre- treasury securities uh, in ways that that you know create more volatility. But these are all essentially symptoms of the basic problem, which is we have to structurally increase the amount of treasury securities we issue every year, and that's not going to change. And if we have another shock like another pandemic, if we have another major conflict, we have anything else that 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 tips us out of this fiscal balance. Like there just isn't the balance sheet capacity. The Fed is going to have to monetize it, and that's just like structurally where we are. What is up, my Bitcoin plebs? Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Bitmax. If you've been in the Bitcoin space for longer than a week, then you probably already know Bitmax as the OG crypto derivatives exchange and one of the biggest supporters of the Bitcoin space in the last decade. But what you might not know is that BitMEX is launching a brand new spot exchange on the 17th of May to easily buy and sell Bitcoin and crypto. To celebrate, they're giving away $1 million in crypto to spot traders over the next few months, and they want you to be a part of it. The Bitcoin Magazine crew had the privilege of meeting their team a few months back, and they think that this is the start of something special for BitMEX and their users. Sign up at BitMEX.com today to catch a slice of the $1 million in crypto giveaway. And stay tuned to our podcast for future product offerings from their team. Again, don't miss out on the giveaway. Free sats are the best sats. So sign up today at bitmex.com. I was about to ask, and then you, you already answered the question, but what I was going to ask was, 
why would any country that wanted to essentially see the demise of the dollar not just buy up all of these treasuries, knowing how much we have leveraged each asset and then just dump them on the open market to crash the value. But these limitations that our uh, Federal Reserve has put forward for other central banks to follow very clearly answers why no other country has done that. Um, I, I do want to know, though, because we are at that point that a lot of people have hypothesized, which would be inevitable, that all of the money printing from 2020 would lead us to some level of inflation where the Fed would have to take an aggressive stance that they may not actually be able to afford to take. And they may have to very quickly reverse it, only to again go back to tightening very quickly. This is a a hypothesis that I buy into. And I'm curious if you buy into this or some degree or what your expectations are on this tightening and untightening we're witnessing here. Yeah, so the Fed uh, has their QT path laid out and that is separate from their rate path, um, which, you know, are important to distinguish. So, you know, and I'm just prognosticating here. I have no, you know, if I I knew the answer to this, I'd be a billionaire. But um, I think there is some nuance to this in 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 the fact that, yeah, like structurally, uh, strategically, you're correct, right? They're stuck, right? So we kind of know where this is going to end. But along the way, there are some tricks that they could do to sort of stall and sort of keep things more held together than you otherwise would think. Um, and so if you think about it, what rates are doing is really a signaling function is this is where we think terminal rates are. So, you know, SOFR, which is sort of the new library rate for how to price money, which is how you price really any other credit instrument around the world. We're basically saying we're going to take that higher. You should believe us. Therefore, you should now charge a higher rate. And so that's how sort of policy transmission takes place in the global uh, dollar market is the Fed signals that people believe them. So they, they raise rates. At least that's the story that they tell. Um, one other aspect, though, that QT, which is sort of independent of the policy rate path, is they're shrinking the balance sheet where they're going to roll off treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities uh, and they have sort of an estimate of like roughly a trillion dollars per year. We'll see if that actually, um, how far they get with that. Um, but critically, like that is what's running into these balance sheet constraints. So you have both like high leverage that interest rates around the world are going to precipitate potential like defaults. And then you have uh, balance sheet constraints for how much treasury issuance uh, and other mortgage-backed security issuance can be taken up by the private market. There are sort of interesting things that the Fed has tried to develop in the post-March 2020 crisis environment. So they have certain authorities, Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act gives them sort of exigent sort of circumstances, emergency authorities. Uh, And they they use those in the pandemic situation to basically target credit issuance to certain sectors of the economy. And if you look at some of the speeches by some Fed officials, Randy Quarles, who have since left, they look back at that and they thought that was a mistake or at least was potentially um, stretching the remit of the Fed far beyond what sort of they had ever done before, where they're essentially now not necessarily in a position of lender of last resort, which is sort of where they've been for, for previous crises, but actively issuing credit to certain sectors of the economy directly uh, and actually backstopping corporate bonds, backstopping the Main Street lending facility. And this is something that they took a lesson from. They didn't get too much blowback from. 
uh, from, from Congress. And in the back of their minds, they're thinking, okay, if there ever is a credit distress crisis situation again, instead of maybe going to QE first, and you know, maybe they'll try to with these more targeted liquidity facilities where they find whichever part of the market's having distress and they say to that market, here's some money. And so instead of just sort of a very inefficient blunt instrument like QE was, which is just stuffing bank reserves uh, into the banking system and hoping that that would like somehow trickle down to whoever, whoever needs the money, just say, okay, whoever needs the money can just get it directly from the Fed and we'll have really loose collateral requirements. So whatever you've got, you know, could just be a promise. <laughs> uh, here's some money. And, and so that is, that is, I think the more, it's super clothed in these technocratic verbiage. It's really in like the, like, they don't like to talk about it too much because it makes the Fed seem like it can just solve the problems, right? And they really don't want to be in that position. So they really don't want, you know, everyone to believe, they really want Congress to believe that they have this authority, but they show that they did have it in, in, the, in the COVID situation. And so that's where you could imagine like a kind of a Frankenstein monetary scenario where rates continue to go up from like a signaling perspective, because that's what they're on the hook politically from the White House is to sort of be strong on inflation. QT could sort of go until they basically, you know, they run into some balance sheet constraints in the, in the banking system or in the money market funds. I think they have some capacity there when it comes to like the reverse, uh, like the RRP, the reverse, reverse, reverse repo facility. Um, and they could do technical tweaks like SLR really to give the banks more capacity to buy. But they also have these like emergency authorities, which they, they may want to use. So this is where I think like, yeah, the end state is the end state. I think you're correct. But I think along the way, like they have tricks. And like when push comes to shove, they, they can do things that, you know, we would say would just be, you know, um, insane. But they sort of did them uh, under those exceptional circumstances of, of, of the pandemic. I don't think they're going to, uh, once they've, you know, once they find something that, like a new power or a new tool, they never just like put it back in the box, right? It's always there uh, waiting to be used. And the threshold for using it is always brought lower and lower and lower, just like QE, right? QE was never considered, you know, like a viable instrument of multi-policy until it was required and then it was just like permanent QE, right? And so I think that's the situation you're in where the Fed will just always be there and always be forced to, to do these um, emergency actions to keep the dollar system uh, from falling apart. Uh, and yeah, but it takes, it takes the crisis though, for them to get the political cover to do that. So I'm not one to pick like a certain put on the S and P, um, it's going to be mostly in the, in these, uh, offshore kind of shadow money system that if there's any acute crisis that, that threatens to spill over to these larger markets that they would, um, have to step in. But I think if you see, but, but I think what, what situation that could make that happen would be recession with with structurally higher inflation, that that doesn't just automatically disappear with uh, with falling um, with falling demand, because that's that's the nightmare scenario. Is if if they can't crush oil, then CPI is going to remain relatively elevated, and then they're in this no-win situation where rising unemployment and inflation that's still uh, sticky and high, and bad news. It sounds, and I said this in the chat joking but i in all seriousness i mean this does not sound like a free market capitalist approach this feels very much in line with the way a socialist country would try to continue to prop up certain industries um matt you may not know this about me but i'm a greedy piece of shit and while i have you here uh 
I love what you're saying, and I think it's it's very spot on. We've seen that approach actually happen. 2008 is the approach that you have just described, where it was not liquidity in the whole market. It was liquidity into the banking sector because so many banks intertwined with one another as well as the real estate market. Uh, given where we see the economy at today, pure speculation, but what are two or three different sectors of the economy that could be pain points in the near future? Oof. Well, I, I'm not a day trader and I'm not a financial advisor. Uh, so, uh, it's be clear, none of this is financial advice. Everyone needs yeah. to do their own due diligence. <laughs> so you're in this, uh, difficult situation because traditionally when you go into the recession, the old standbys are go to cash, go to bonds and defensives, you know, basically to try to rate it out. So if you're trying to play like the cycle and you're just like risk off, like that would be the, the way to go. I don't know if that's the situation that we're going to see right now because you have this global dynamic where people are so manic basically. Right. And I think that is what's shocking to me is just how quickly you've seen the narrative shift from inflation to recession. Right. And so I think people think right now we're in like that pivot from in inflation to recession. And then mentally they're, they're recalibrating towards what a traditional recession is. But I think people just don't have a mental model for like an inflationary depression. Right. Where where essentially inflation for lots of reasons, whether it's demographics, because old people you know, have high medical costs and COVID is straining even more medical costs, which basically burdens our public systems. We have to spend more money. We have to rearm in a geopolitical conflict. Uh, we have to, uh, in accord with the sort of G7 communiques, invest uh, to, to outcompete China in the Belt Road Initiative. Uh, they made, Western governments made huge amounts of commitments to uh, re-green their economies, despite, um, you know, the, the manifest Russian dependency that they have in Europe on, on, on oil and gas. So all these things are be structurally inflationary, like they just have to invest and create more credit basically to accomplish those strategic objectives. Uh, but really, you know, they're running out of hard resources to do this, right? And so when you have high demand and not enough resources, you get high prices. Um, but you have geopolitical situations creating uncertainty and volatility. When there's high volatility, people pull back their credit. And so I think to, this sort of ties both points. I think what you're going to see is private credit issues, basically private credit markets stop to marginally function very well. And so all the assets and equities that are tied to this private sort of private money creation basically become really vulnerable. Uh, and so that's why I see like venture capital and all these sorts of more growthy starts of the sector become more vulnerable because, you know, fundamentally they're, they're, they're based on confidence in a growing global system, growing economy, you know, that we can price these things at high valuations, assuming, you know, exponential growth, et cetera. Meanwhile, the marginal production of new credits can be come from, you know, the state sector, essentially state-led finance. And in the East, it'll be explicitly state-directed. In the West, it'll be basically like strong incentives and penalties if you don't finance what we want you to finance. And so I think if you're trying to invest for like that time horizon, find, you know, this is like, this is the, this is the sad part of what you're in right now, right? If you're really trying to make money, you know, Basically, the central planning is what is gonna is gonna drive credit issues and, and, and drive growth. Um, and until those 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 structures fail, that's where the marginal credit creation is gonna go to. Um, and I think what you're seeing right now, so I got, that's where I would invest. Basically, things like, for example, like in um, the United States, I think is relatively well positioned, but certain sectors of the economy are gonna benefit from geopolitical tension. Right? We're gonna have to be 
uh, reversing some of the flows of globalization that we've seen in the past 20 years. So a lot of investment is going to have to come to uh, North America, Mexico, some parts of South America, maybe some parts of South Asia to try to re relocate some of our critical supply chains. We're going to need to sort of dramatically reinvest in our domestic economy to try to um, limit our dependency on some of those critical overseas production, uh, namely in China. Um, and we're also going to be trying to fight a new Cold War with China and eventually a, uh, a indefinite proxy war in Europe with Russia. And that's just going to be uh, expensive uh, and leave lots of money going to sort of the defense uh, industrial sector. <laughs> and so uh, if you're sort of being cynical and you just want to play, play the flows, that's, uh, that's, that's where you would go. Whether that's you know, good <laughs> is, is another story. Um, so, yeah, I, that's, that's where I would be. But I don't know. I am... Uh, I'm also just like thinking about things in the long term. So I think in general, this is extremely volatile situation. So trying to predict what's going to happen to a certain market next 6, 12, 18 months is hopeless. I'm trying to think about where we are by the end of the decade in, in like the 2030 uh, timeframe. And that's where, you know, that's where, you know, you make, make these long-term bets. That's why I think Bitcoin has the most um, interesting uh, kind of relevance um, given all those given all the dynamics that, that, that we've played out. So that's where, you know, if I'm thinking to the end of the decade, uh, you know, I think that's a good place. I really appreciate that color. I mean, look, I was sitting here jaw dropping and laughing at the idea that, cause you're absolutely right. In the short term, who's going to win people who are making the rules and who's making the rules right now, it's the bankers. Um, but you know, let's, let's look at 2030, the end of this decade. Do you think a, the federal reserve, is still operating and B, does it have the influence and power that it has today on the global and domestic stage? Oof. Well, uh, so if you go to the Bitcoin magazine print edition, uh, that was just dropped, uh, <laughs> uh, I wrote a long essay. I think half of it's in the print edition. The other half maybe maybe posted on the website sometime soon. Uh, I think I wrote like 10,000 words to try to answer something like that question. Um, but, uh, and the way I sort of preface that essay is, is sort of intellectually humble, right? Like that is, there's a lot of ways this could play out. There's a lot of scenarios and sort of think probabilistically in terms of those scenarios and think about sort of, you know, fundamentally what you're asking is what is the, what is the structure of the monetary system in 2030? And for me, the structure of the monetary system is always downstream of the structure of the geopolitical order, right? Because whoever is the most dominant power basically gets to set the rules of the monetary system. And so if you think there's going to be a change in the monetary order, you need to think there's going to be a change in the geopolitical order. And then you would need to analyze what would precipitate a change in the geopolitical order, how that unfold, uh, assuming we're still alive by the end of the day. Um, and so that's where I try to lay out, like, you know, bracketing off certain extreme scenarios, right? Because I think you need to bracket it off, right? You bracket off the scenarios of World War III, bracket off the scenario of, of you know, another crazy pandemic shock, uh, if you bracket off kind of the more extreme tail risk scenarios, you need, which again, should not be bracketed off, but like you just want to be, you know, keep your head on straight. Think about something close to the status quo enduring over the next several years. What would be the structural trends that are already in place that would lead to a different outcome by 2030? And that's where I think, you know, the key question is, you know, this, this, how the United States responds to the challenge to its, to its geopolitical status uh, and I think, you know, net, net, I don't think it's going to be a collapse of the United States, but I don't think it's going to be, um, like, uh, a rise of China either. I think it's more likely you're going to see, you know, 
marginal rebalancing. And all that you need to have is marginal rebalancing take place like a few percentage points every year for 10 years, and you're in a vastly different world. And I think even if you just make those sort of, I'd say, relatively more charitable assumptions, if you sort of think about where things could be in eight or 10 years, yes, you could see a, a much more um, mixed distribution of power around the world. Uh, I think the United States would still be very strong just because we have, you know, such immense natural resources. We're isolated in terms of our, our continental protection. Uh, we have decent de you know, uh, demography relative to other parts of the world. Uh, so I think we'll be still relatively strong, assuming that we don't, you know, go through a major, you know, domestic political crisis um, or some other major social upheaval. Um, but like endogenous capabilities, we have uh, we have a lot of. Um, but I think you know you just can't argue with the fact that um, Eurasia is trying to rise and challenge that U.S.-led geopolitical order. And so if you think about it from the perspective of like world history, Eurasia has been, you know, the center of gravity, uh, you know, the old McKinder theory, right? He, he who controls Eurasia and heartland controls um, Eurasia, who controls Eurasia controls, you know, the world island essentially controls the world. Um, and the way I have it, it's a little bit of a, of a trope, but if you think about like the, the G7 meeting, sort of the, the NATO meeting, there's almost a new NATO being formed, which is essentially like um, Oceania, right? Great Oceania. It's the uh, it's it's Western Europe, the Oceanic powers, you know, Great Britain, uh, the United States, Canada, and then the Asian uh, sort of island and and, uh, and and ocean powers, North Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, etc. All basically in a geopolitical alignment uh, globally. Uh, and, you know, if you look at history, maritime powers historically have been more of like the commercially oriented uh, powers. Uh, that have traditionally formed more like liberal democratic orders, right? So like Northern Europe, basically. Um, and, and then, you know, it's a little bit more of like social determinism, but essentially Eurasia, because it's landlocked, much more prone to sort of um, uh, kind of, kind of, you could say autocratic governance systems. And so you have a sort of like uh, uh, revenge of history coming, coming to the fore where Eurasia was, was historically weak th throughout the 20th century because it was divided after after the Nixon trip, uh, where the Soviets and Russia basically were were pitted against each other, and that was like a major geopolitical victory. It basically, divided Eurasia, and that allowed kind of the, the Oceania liberal democratic kind of capitalist bloc to eventually outspend the Soviets and, and their and their system collapse. And then, you know, in that heyday of the '90s, we thought you know like superpower global U.S. Uh, hegemony would reign would reign forever, the end of history, etc. And we thought we could go into Russia and basically remake them in our in our image. We could bring China into that system entirely and have kind of Pax Americana reign supreme around the world. That that sort of um, that dream completely shattered, basically um, uh, slowly. But but really, you know, I think people woke up to it when when Russia um, uh, uh, went into uh, uh, Ukraine the first time. But you know that was a story that was that was sort of seeded earlier than that. I mean, China and Russia have been growing together, um, sort of structurally for a number of years. Really, it was when both Putin and Xi came to power that they sort of saw kind of uh, a strategic alignment in place. And so that's where I'm, if I'm like looking at the 2030 arrangement, you have to see about what's the geopolitics of that going going to play out, and just how the relative power balance is going to play between basically Eurasian axis of authoritarians uh, dominating Eurasia which controls you know, the, the marginal unit of, of energy and food and production right now against sort of Great Oceania, which controls the marginal production of credit 
uh, and insurance and the global banking system. And when those sort of three forces, sort of energy, production, and credit, were in sort of frenemy mode with really credit being the dominant of those three powers, the global system sort of worked. Uh, and we could sort of leverage the control over the dollar system to control those two kind of key economic uh, factors, energy and, and, and production. Now energy and production are trying to align against and trying to re, re, recreate a new monetary structure a new, and a new geopolitical um, arrangement uh, and trying to challenge essentially the US-led dollar system. And that, that is essentially the foundational conflict that's underway right now. Um, and so how that plays out, like which one of those wins will essentially determine what the world looks like in the 30s and whether the Fed will have the power that it has today will sort of be contingent on how that, that plays out. Um, and so yeah, it could play out different scenarios from there uh, you know, scenarios in which, you know, Russia completely collapses, where Russia wins, where China has demographic collapse, where China, you know, leverages new technology to carve out a new sphere of influence. Like you could play each of the scenarios out, but that's what you have to analyze and, and have a position on if you're going to think by 2030, uh, you know, whether the dollar system and the Fed are going to be still, you know, as, as dominant as they are today. Yeah, let's shift over to China. Um mm -hmm. You tweeted a couple hours ago, uh, since 2013, China has weaponized the dollar system for BRI. U.S. sends China dollars for cheap goods. China uses some of the dollars to maintain a CNY peg and launders a lot into Western equity real estate instead of USTs. China lends a bunch of dollars to BRI, buying up hard assets and influence. <laughs> he said, G7 right now. Oh. Yeah, let's go into, let's go into the, China, the, the, the China aspect of all this. Um, what is its role? What is its current role in geopolitics? Yes. So China, very complicated. I've been trying a number of times. Um, and obviously in my current position, I'm not speaking on behalf of, of my, of my firm. Um, we advise a lot of, uh, you know, large multinationals on China and, you know, help them assess kind of their cyber risk, uh, and the geopolitical risk uh, with respect to China. And so, so there's a lot there <laughs> that, that, that particular tweet, uh, was referencing the fact that China's relationship to the dollar system, pivoted in 2013 when, as I mentioned, their uh, holdings of the Treasury securities peaked. But they kept acquiring dollars because we run structural trade deficits with them. We, we, we essentially moved all of our manufacturing over to China when they brought in, when we, we, they went to the, the WTO in 2001, and uh, they become manufacturing powerhouse to the world after that. They accumulate dollars. What do they do with those dollars? So they, when they stop buying U.S. Treasuries with them, they buy other stuff, right? So what have they been buying? Well, part of it has been using it to maintain the peg. So they keep their currency at a fixed exchange rate to, you know, basically structurally weaken it to keep them as this sort of mercantilist export power. But that's only part of it. Um, a lot of it has been expertly laundered into Western real estate and equity markets over the years. And so they have a very sophisticated pipeline of shell companies from Hong Kong to the Cayman Islands to Luxembourg. Uh, to Delaware LLCs and hedge funds, and then taking positions in Western equity markets and real estate markets, buying up um, either overtly or covertly, you know, large stakes in Western companies, real estate, farmland, et cetera. That has, that has strategic national security implications. Um, but they've also taken those dollars that they accumulate uh, from our structural trade deficits and have been embarked on, you know, uh, really since 2013, which is the same year that their treasury holdings peaked, on a massive program of dollar denominated overseas lending called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a strategic priority of theirs to invest in infrastructure, uh, acquisition of hard assets, invest in ports, land, rail, transportation, 
uh, agriculture uh, around the Eurasian periphery in Africa and South America. I mean, it's 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 everywhere. If you, you know, just uh, look at look on a map and look at number of, of um, countries that have received BR, BRI funding. Um, and the reason why I, I tweeted that is because the G7 just announced like a $200 billion kind of joint investment fund to try to directly compete with the BRI, um, oh, sure, which, no is, uh, which is a day late and 10 years, it's, it's 10 years late and a few trillion dollars short um, uh, if, they, if they're serious about competing on that, on that pipeline. But basically they're taking the dollars, like, like we're giving them the dollars and then they're buying hard assets with them. Um, and so, you know, not exactly the great situation to be in uh, if you're, you know, if you're trying to confront them uh, in this great power competition. The other thing I'll say about China right now, sort of internally, China has a lot of issues. Um, their economic system is not, uh, you know, humming along at all cylinders. The zero COVID policy is really putting a dent in their domestic um, uh, economic growth. And yet they have this sort of state directed capitalist system that uh, is sort of pushing on a string right now. Um, where they're trying to sort of slowly pop this massive real estate bubble uh, in China, because there's no real estate taxes, holding a second and third and fourth apartment has basically been the most preferred form of savings for the uh, for the rising urban middle class. Um, and when you have you know, basically state directed lending, all sorts of you know accommodative financing, massive property bubble that they try to like selectively pop. Uh, and the reason why I don't think they're going to have a massive banking crisis because it's all state controlled. So they can just decide who's going to win, who's going to lose, right? They can just say, you're going to eat this amount of loss over this period of time, you know, end of story, or you go to the gulag. Uh, so there's no risk of like a financial collapse because they can just, they control the ledgers entirely. So they can make it say what they want to say. It doesn't mean there's going to be like productive growth. It just means there's, you know, it's almost impossible for there to be like a true banking crisis in, inside China. Um, but it is structurally going to be, I think, more, uh, it's going to retrench away from the global system. I think COVID zero is here until she changes his mind. Um, it is his personal policy. He does not get a whole lot of good information to him. If you say something wrong to him or something he doesn't like, you don't say anything anymore. Uh, and it's a very personalized autocratic system that he set up. And those systems are vulnerable to not being very good information processing engines. Um, and he's coming up to try to get his third term, uh, 20th party Congress, uh, this fall. And, you know, China CCP is a one party state, but there's factions and the COVID zero has put a lot of strain, uh, in internally. And there's been factions that have been trying to sort of subtly position and he's, you know, solidifying his authority. So lots of people are falling outside of, uh, of, you know, falling off, off, off of balconies, et cetera. Um, and yeah, so, you know, there's always the risk of a tail risk, like, there is a coup or something like that. I don't think it's very likely at all. Um, and he solidifies power and he's he's uh, basically, you know, uh, ruler for life. The reason why I'm talking so much about Xi is because in China, like the major economic policies are top down directed and COVID zero is the most dramatic. Um, and until that materially changes, like China's um, role in the world uh, and being able to sort of facilitate this sort of either ameliorate this sort of deglobalization is is a. Uh, is really, you know, the key decision. Uh, and right now, it doesn't look like COVID zero is going to go anywhere, um, and that that imposes a huge amount of economic burden, friction, international travel. Uh, you know, at a moment's notice, supply chains can be weaponized uh, out of various ports. So yeah, I think you're into this period of time where multinationals don't have yet like the trigger point to like, you know, justify a complete exit from China, but they're looking ahead and seeing rising challenges or a more difficult policy environment 
And then the risk of, uh, you know, a Taiwan scenario that, you know, really ruptures uh, economic relations entirely and precipitates, you know, a massive economic event. And so that's where China sits right now is, you know, they're absolutely critical to the global economy. Um, unlike Russia, which is like 1% of global GDP. Uh, China, uh, I mean, Russia has a massive outsized influence because of their, their, uh, their commodities. Uh, and so that's nothing to sneeze at. But China would be 10 times uh, more of an impact um, and would easily precipitate a global depression if we tried to do the same sort of sanctions on them. Um, it would just be, you know, total war. So that is, that is the risk that's, you know, that, that's a really bad risk in my mind is, um, is you know, a really, uh, a really uh, sort of material decline in the um, relations between the United States and China to the point where, you know, South China Sea or Taiwan become uh, a conflict area. One of the questions we got from uh, Joe Calasari was <laughs> if we're seeing any types of uh, positive economic activity, are we seeing any green shoots in the Chinese economy in Taiwan, et cetera? Yeah, so I think China China has a credit cycle just like every other economy has a credit cycle. And I think because there, it's also much more state controlled, they can sort of, you know, swing that pendulum of the credit cycle uh, a little bit more um, with, a, with a higher degree of fine control than, than the weekend in the West. And they, they sort of tried to pop uh, a credit bubble, especially in the tech sector and the equity sector last year. Uh, and so you saw a massive drawdown in uh, like the tech sector, the Hong Kong. Uh, there was obviously people looking at like the Evergrande and, you know, property uh, losses. So they've been taking a lot of pain over the past 12 months. And, you know, if you follow kind of the more like the high frequency data, it seems like there's a rebound in sort of marginal credit growth in China. Some like Western banks at like JP Morgan are saying, you know, maybe now is the time to get back into China, yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, they have a certain vested interest in making it look like it's a safe place to put money. <laughs> um, so I think there, there could be, um, at least in the near term, an uptrend on the margin in China from where it had been the past 12 months, uh, especially as you know, the West is, is facing, is hitting that trough now um, in terms of our kind of deleveraging cycle. But it's hard, I, it's hard for me to put too much, to put too much optimism there because COVID-0 doesn't seem to be going away. Um, and until they get their um, mRNA vaccines rolled out, which is gonna take a while, um, they're going to be vulnerable to, you know, the next Omicron. Uh, and they don't have a very strong healthcare system. They've got a lot of elderly population and the leadership has staked their legitimacy on COVID control. So if there ever is ever a, a choice between economic growth, hitting their GDP targets and a COVID breakout, they're going to choose to crush the COVID breakout full stop. Um, and so just when you think, you know, there could be signs of, you know, a reopening China, higher, you know, commodity demand, more credit growth, more Western investment, like you're always vulnerable to that shock. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's not something I would put a whole lot of, like, I wouldn't put my personal money <laughs> in there. You know, they're also trying to play for a scenario where there is massive global disruptions to commodity markets. Cause they think this Russia thing isn't over yet um, by any means. Uh, global food insecurity is only gonna get worse. Uh, China's been hoarding lots of food and commodities. Um, they're, you know, they're preparing their society 
and using the and, and implementing technologies to you know weather a major economic, social, and potential food crisis. Um, and so, yeah, that's to me, it's not looking like a back to normal sort of thing in China by any means. Um, it is a like they're batting on the hatches um, for for some tail risk scenarios coming out of um, Russia escalation and commodity markets because they're acutely vulnerable to commodity disruptions. I mean, they rely heavily on, 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 on energy and food and, and raw materials imports to fuel the production economy. Uh, and they have a lot of mouth to feed, um, still dealing with, you know, swine flu that wiped out a bunch of their pigs. Um, so they've been massively accumulate, uh, accumulating uh, food stocks. So yeah, that's, yeah, I, I don't, I don't exactly um, uh, pin too much hopes on China growth, even if in the near term, you can see a rebound in their equity markets, because they're relaxing some of these draconian policies on their tech sector. Um, and they're clearly trying to, you know, stimulate some growth. Um, but it's in China, it's always a political decision. So unless you know what their leader is going to decide, you're at the mercy. That's so interesting. Okay. I want to shift topics again. Um, wait, 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 wait. I, I have a question <laughs> on this topic because we, we've joked for generations now that eventually everyone in America is going to need to learn Chinese because of all the debt China has over us. Um, like in my hometown, a lot of home sales have been going to Chinese foreign people. Point blank, it is not Americans selling their homes to other Americans. It is now foreign money coming in to America at a much greater rate than ever has been seen before. Uh, I want to get a sense from you as to why, or maybe it's just a, an irrational thought that we've had for so long, but why would China want to see the dollar diminish on the global scale when they hold so much debt and have so many assets tied up here in America for now? So it's, you think about the, uh, China makes these long-term plans. So they have a 2025 plan, a 2035 plan, a 2049 plan. Uh, the 24, 2049 plan is the most important one. That's like a hundred years, you know, since the CCP's founding. And this, and all these are state directed national strategic objectives uh, that they sort of all try to link together, right? And one of them is like the great rejuvenation. They wanna see China basically become a global peer power uh, equivalent to the United States. They want to have like the respect as being like a great nation that they think is, you know, what was lost basically after the ravages of the opium wars and the, and the exploitations that sort of befell the Chinese um, people, you know, in the decades since. And so they see this as like a historical, um, uh, it's not just a pure economic thing. Like they see it as like a, a piece of their civilization, like a, a, a status uh, uh, for the civilization that they need to regain. And, and so for them, it's not just like, the blocking and tackling like the monetary um, pecking order, it's like they need to see themselves and see other people see them as a great nation, a great civilization on, pa on par with the United States. Um, and and there, there, a lot of the leadership, uh, the CCP's le legitimacy is tied up in meeting those objectives, sort of you know, telling even that this has been part of the propaganda for years. Um, and so you know, people, I mean, even though it's not quite rational, somewhat, um, personify the currencies as like the strength of the currency is like the strength of our nation, even though that's kind of an absurd thing. Um, it does give you a certain degree of power in trade dynamics, right? The United States is able to print dollars and get real goods. Uh, every country would want that to, to a certain extent. Uh, that always comes with a trade-off though, like the Trifon Dilemma. If your currency is the reserve currency, you have to basically be willing to like 
buy the stuff from other people, which means the stuff isn't made in your country. It's made somewhere else, which means those, that that production is, is benefiting those other countries. Their labor markets are the ones that benefit at the expense of your labor markets. And so that, that has been a sort of globalization is sort of hollowed out our manufacturing base and relocated production uh, overseas. Our elites thought that was a great deal because we were the most powerful military power. We essentially could view those foreign factories as just, you know, America juniors, right? That would sort of take instructions from us and would, you know, be, be, be would play nice in a global uh, trade system. China's basically saying, no, like we're not gonna play nice in that trade system. We're gonna weaponize it against you. And so they want on the margin to be able to price commodities in yuan, um, but they don't right now want and really are not in a position to uh, like flip the flip the tables in the United States and have the yuan be the reserve currency because that would force them to reverse their entire basic economic and and, and currency system, uh, which is mercantilist, export driven. Uh, if they were the res reserve currency, all of that Chinese uh, manufacturing would have to go to their trade partners that they're running this this trick with, right? So they want to try to hedge their bets and have this sort of slow transition take place over time. Uh, and they, it really is contingent on them domestically rebalancing their economy. So they, they need, if they're if you follow this uh, Chinese specialist named Michael Pettis, there's sort of not that many options they have, but like the best one for them to pursue would eventually to raise domestic incomes uh, and, you know, basically move in more investment away from like the state sector and the property sector into the domestic sector, stimulate more domestic consumption, just like we have huge amounts of domestic consumption. Um, and then gradually basically, um, be able to, you know, have more of a, of a, of an independently powered economy that doesn't rely on just producing for the rest of the world, but they're not there yet. And so they're in the position where they basically need to, um, kind of grow their own system organically inside of an existing system. Cause it's not just going to happen in a vacuum, just like the United States, the dollar didn't just become the dollar in a vacuum. We took it over from the British over a period of like 20 years. And it took a long time. It took world wars for that system to like fully flip. Right. And it was like, World War One was sort of the first signs of it when London and New York were starting to compete uh, for trade finance. And, you know, they went, uh, London went into a lot of debt uh, in World War One, and so it became somewhat subservient to, to, to New York relatively. But they were still, you know, had all the historical weight behind them, especially in Europe and global trade. So they were still kind of the, the number one. Uh, it really was World War Two and the collapse of the British Empire and their massive debts um, and, you know, the United States Marshall Plan and all that stuff basically to, like, completely uh, flip and, uh, and have the dollar take over. So, like, it takes dramatic global changes like that for, like, reserve currency to shift. And I think China just, like, would prefer, I mean, everyone would prefer not to have it be, like, a global war, right? Because <laughs> usually, even if you come out, say, on top, you could be coming out on top in a much more diminished uh world and you know everyone likes to be rich um so i think their their primary objective is just to do this slow game that's why they have these decade-long plans 2025 get to a certain state indigenize basically their own technology so they have had a massive program to basically copy paste western technology um uh for the past you know 20 years uh and build up their own industrial capacity and start to climb the value chain and they're still behind but that's their objective to sort of steadily increase their technological capabilities and their industrial capabilities and AI and semiconductors and automobile manufacturing and high precision manufacturing, et cetera, to the point where they can now essentially, you know, become a regional hegemon and dominate essentially a sphere of influence that's, uh, you know, eventually they see it as being a peer to the United States. And so they have essentially 
the, the first and the second island chain as like their version of like the Monroe Doctrine. It's like, this is our territory. Don't mess with us. You know, we're going to basically divide the Pacific in half and Eurasia will split with Russia and we'll have a multipolar, a multipolar world order. That's what they want um, to, achieve, to achieve by 2035, roughly. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's why it's a slow game. It's a matter of sort of carving out spheres of influence, creating regional trade relationships where they can denominate commodities in Yuan on the margin without upsetting, you know, their mercantilist policy and insulate themselves from, you know, what is going to be much more hostile dollar sanctions regime <laughs> and how they can navigate that, uh, that, uh, that, that in the process. And that's where it's going to be successful. Um, you know, but that's their, that's their, that's their plan. Okay, I've, I've sufficiently introduced enough chaos and depression onto Monday. So, P.I., I can feed the <laughs> mic to you. No, no, I love this. Uh, it's like staring into the sun and uh, I'm learning so much. Okay, do you actually, first question, do you prefer Matthew or Matt? It's a good question. I usually have gone by Matt, Okay. but uh, I don't have much of a preference. But yeah, Matt's usually quicker. Okay, okay. Matt, it is. Um, you posted recently as well on talking about, you said the fundamental economy of the internet is surveillance. You can nibble around the edges, but the stakes are very high now. I wonder if the Roe decision will catalyze interest in what Block and Jack are building with Web5. You need to bring control over one's ID and data. Let's, let's dig into that. Tell mm -hmm. us what you meant by that and what's at stake here. Yeah, it actually is a good segue from the China story too, because if you think about the, the great competition that's unfolding is also competition for forms of of, of of governance in a technological society, right? And China's approach to that is like the 1984 on steroids, digital totalitarian surveillance state, right? And there's been some reporting in the New York Times just in the past week or so on just how sophisticated the Chinese technology there is, where, you know, they have like minority report, right? They can track everyone, they can do algorithmic um, uh, like alerts if people gather in certain locations, if people say the wrong words. I think you tweeted about it, right? Um, yeah, this it's is like terrifying. This is terrifying, right? Like, and, and just just for the audience, I just want yeah. to iterate a little bit more. Yeah. Um, the Chinese system is so precise that the police are able to say like, this person is a known agitator. So anytime they leave their house and their phone is not with them, or if they board a train to this specific area like Beijing, flag them, send police over there. And it, honestly, it blew my mind, the, the level of precision that they were talking about. I, I retweeted the post, but mm -hmm. uh, as I said, it is some deeply dystopian shit. Yeah, and that, that's not only what they're building domestically, but they're exporting it as a, essentially authoritarianism as a service to you know dictators around the world, authoritarians around the world who can basically just subscribe to the Chinese governance model, right? Get 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 the 5G Huawei equipment, get the, the Hikavision um, video cameras, get these AI software monitoring tools uh, downloaded, installed, and Chinese people training their security forces, and boom, right? You basically can you know surveil and monitor your entire population, and you don't have to develop that technology. You basically, just you pay China for the privilege. Uh, and by the way, China gets all that data on your population at the same time. So that is that is like truly a scary. Uh, proposition, right? And it's not just affecting, you know, people in China as much as it's unfortunate for them, but, you know, China has ambitions and there's, like, strong demand for this technology around the world. Um, so, you know, if you think the United States um, can be, uh, you know, or should be uh, pushing back against that and, and offering a different model to countries around the world, not just at home, then I think 
you know, we need to think hard about what sort of, um, you know, digital infrastructure we have and, and are going to continue to build that's going to um, offer a different value proposition and proposition in terms of values than, than what the Chinese are building. Um, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion post the, the road decision on the implications for digital privacy and legal exposure for, for women. Um, you know, people talking about deleting information from their period trackers, but that's like the tip of the iceberg in terms of the amount of data that, uh, that can be used that right now is sort of, or was, you know, entirely benign, but could now expose someone to, you know, legal prosecution. Um, and, and that, that, you know, that, that then would potentially bring a lot of attention on, well, is there a different way to structure the internet <laughs> that, that, is, uh, that is less premised on collecting uh, all this data, centralizing it in, you know, a random ecosystem of exploited, uh, exploitative third parties that can be subpoenaed or just give it up to the to, 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 to law enforcement. And that's why I think what Jack and what uh, the block is, are, you know, are, are trying to build, or at least seem to have a roadmap for uh, with uh, de decentralized um, identity and decentralized or data stores is so, um, you know, intriguing uh, and potentially like attractive. Uh, and yeah, that's, that is, I think, an, and people look at Web five and think it probably have like a, a contaminated uh, mental association because of all the the nonsense around Web three. But you know, there's a is a CSU Wildcat on Twitter. I forget his actual name, but he's uh, he came over from the Ion project with, with Microsoft. He's over there at, at the block now, building kind of the infrastructure there. I'm just really excited to see what comes out. Obviously, it's still very very early. Um, probably you know a fair bit of ways away from you know being a viable alternative infrastructure. Like if we're going to have a truly like competitive model against United, against China, like we're going to out totalitarianize China. And this brings in like the CBDC discussion because it's all for me sort of a suite of modern digital technologies about how you do governance in the 21st century when it comes to your money, when it comes to your data, when it comes um, to you know, basic patterns of commerce. And like the infrastructure we built, over the, you know, the early days of the internet, just um, are are easily capturable and centralizable and exploitable uh, in ways that undermine human freedom. <laughs> and China is showing us like the worst case version of that. Uh, and you know, I think we should use that as a way to sort of calibrate against. Like, okay, how do we how do we build the anti-China model? What, what what would that look like? I think it would look something like what Jack has in mind. And so if I'm like, okay. China model sort of represents the worst of all possible scenarios. Jack may be like on the other end of the spectrum there. I think that that's a contrast that right now is sort of on the whiteboard, but you know, I, I'm really optimistic about. Yeah, me too. I am. Uh, it's one of the shining beacons for me personally, like in the darkness. This the work that Block and Spiral and everyone over there is doing. Um, I also I, I just want to want to reflect on how amazing of a troll calling it web five is when that got in that got posted into our internal uh you know like news aggregation slack at bitcoin magazine <laughs> i thought that we were trolling everyone else and they had to explain to me like no 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 jack dorsey actually called it web five and i just love that he just skipped over web four because it's all horseshit <laughs> it's so good I, my favorite was the response when someone said, did I miss Web 4? And Jack even doubled down and said, no. Uh, Matt, I know we're winding down with our time with you. Uh, I'm really sad. I'm going to just say point blank on camera in front of everyone. Will you come back on the show? 
no, this is terrible. <laughs> Fair. This is, this is All right. <laughs> Fair enough on that. Uh, I will, however, despite that answer, give you the soapbox. I know we have a couple minutes left. If there's a, a little rant you want to go on or a thought you want to share that we didn't get a chance to touch on, the mic is yours. Well, interesting. Um, well, so there's a lot of random stuff that I don't get to talk about. Uh, you know, there's like the macro conversation, which is interesting, but there's a lot of people that talk about macro and I'm not a professional hedge fund. So, you know, don't, 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 don't make bets on my, my wager. Um, I always try to think about in terms of scenarios, in terms of probability distributions, because I think people get too wedded to a certain idea, a certain uh, view of how things could be or should be, and then project that on to the way that things would be or could be. Um, and just the world will surprise you. Uh, like that was a lesson of COVID to me. I think people still fall back into sort of normalcy bias. Um, and I recognize the sort of psychological attraction of that, right? People don't want to have to constantly be in this like edgy state of chaos and uncertainty. And, you know, everyone just wants there to be like the, the, the reversion to the normal predictable mean and that all the chaos of the past 10 of the past two years will, you know, just be an unfortunate blip in, in the rearview mirror. And yeah, like that's a psychologically comfortable state. I just don't know if it's reality. Um, and so I'm constantly trying to test like all the different ways things can go wrong. I mean, that sometimes make you more like a bearish person by nature, because maybe you, you tend to imagine more of the negative things, but also trying to imagine some of the positive things, right? There's lots of things that we're sort of underestimating both on both sides of the probability distribution, right? We tend to focus on the sort of the thick middle and we, you know, historically have been surprised by the really bad tail risks like wars and pandemics. Um, uh, but I think there's also things on the, on the right side of the tail that don't get as much attention. So I'm also like a science geek, uh, as a physics nerd undergrad, I'm like obsessed with physics and what's going on the cutting edge of physics. Um, you know, another life, if I actually liked, you know, working in a basement lab 10, 10 hours a day, that's, that's what, what I, I would have done. But um, yeah, like I, I actually think fundamentally, like our, our whole global predicament comes down to finding new physics, which unlocks new sources of energy or technology that allows us to sort of uh, bootstrap a new form of social and human development. I mean, that was a story for the past 300 years, and we've sort of been coasting on physics breakthroughs that really are like 100 years old. So if you go back to like the 20s and the 30s, the discovering formulation of quantum mechanics and general relativity was what unlocked sort of all the modern technologies, right? When it comes to satellite navigation and timing, microelectronics for computers, um, basically the whole suite of modern digital life are premised on physics that we discovered 100 years ago. And physics has basically been stalled since like the 70s. Um, you know, talk to, uh, to, to Eric Weinstein about that. He's a similar lament as me. Um, and honestly, I think we're not gonna like get ourselves out of this current, you know, what you could call like, stagnation um unless we find a new physics that allows us to unlock new new, new technology it sounds like crazy like why would we talk about physics but like in it, you know like because we haven't had new physics breakthroughs people don't talk about physics as much right it's like but if you go back to like the 30s and 40s and 50s it was like in the popular culture like the jetsons and all this sort of stuff was all like the great new next thing that was going to be found out and discovered and then i think had massive downstream cultural effects not just the pure technological, technological or economic effects. And I think because we've been sort of stalled in our basic physics knowledge, like that's actually like useful physics knowledge as opposed to, you know, you know, pretty pictures, which are nice from like the Hubble, um, that we've sort of just been, we've been forced to issue debt. We've been forced to sort of borrow from the future to pull forward, uh, you know, 
productivity that we hope we can pay off through some future discovery. And I think like we're, we're reaching the limits of that. Right. And I think fundamentally, like if we're going to like find a new, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of leg up uh, in terms of global economic capacity, we're going to need to find it in physics. And so, yeah, if there's any rich Bitcoiners out there that are sitting on a nice fat stack, you know, looking for charitable causes, I say, it is a underappreciated uh, you know, ROI is putting into fundamental physics research. <laughs> I actually had a chat with Eric Weinstein at the Bitcoin conference about that, that, that very fact. Um, although he was down there with, with Avi Loeb uh, drumming up funding for, uh, for the Galileo initiative, which is the, uh, the, the sort of private sector initiative to try to find out exactly what those objects are that are, that are uh, you know, living around in our skies and, and under our water. Um, which is a separate topic uh, if you want to go, to, go into the... Uh, the alien uh, uh, <laughs> rabbit hole. I, I, I have a good thread on that. On the show. I don't give a damn what you say. I will just come find you and corner you. You're coming back on the show. Yeah, well, we'll make that one all about, all about, uh, all about UAPs and aliens. And yeah, your, your subscribers will go off a cliff. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Matt, I know you got to go. I want to be respectful of your time. This has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, as always, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, can, happy. Uh, last thing is... Uh, Matt Pines, we I put you. I took the liberty of putting your Twitter handle into the Chiron underneath you. Um, where else can people find you in order to uh, your uh, your conversation topics, thoughts, analysis? Yeah, so like professionally, I work at the Krebs Stamos Group. I don't represent them here. It's just my personal thoughts. Um, but you know, I'm on a website. We, we we're doing some uh, very cool work, um, mostly uh, for for our clients. <laughs> um, but you also can check out the btcpolicy.org, so the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Uh, I'm affiliated with that. We're doing some uh, really great work. Uh, David Zell and a whole bunch of others um, are really getting in the trenches in D.C., you know, trying to make the case for Bitcoin and uh, examining policy um, uh, considerations related to Bitcoin. In fact, I just did a uh, private briefing for a bunch of staffers last Thursday on Bitcoin in D.C., invited a bunch of, you know, staffers from the Hill Got him into a room and just said, "Here's here's the here, here's the gist of Bitcoin and U.S. national security. What are your questions?" And just had a really good kind of um, you know safe space <laughs> to to ask and answer some of those questions. And so we're doing more of that, uh, responding to some of the RFIs that the government has put out there uh, after the executive order. So responding on sort of digital assets, um, energy, uh, U.S. national security issues, kind of uh, you know help help inform the broader policy um, discussion inside inside DC. Um, and so yeah, you can go to the website there. Uh, I think sign up for like a newsletter, I think the, they're, they're putting out. Um, so I think that's that's just hitting an, another inflection point. I really just got it off the ground and um, you know Grant McCarthy and, and and others that I know you all are familiar with are really um, you know driving that. Uh, so yeah. But yeah, DM me, whatever. I'm on Twitter. Amazing. All right, my friends, we are at the end of our show. Uh, tomorrow we will be having June Seth of Bitcoin Uncensored, an incredible pillar in the cultural aspects of Bitcoin, an American hodl on the show. And uh, we'll see you then.